And let's do that. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you. We are so grateful that indeed our salvation is found in you. This world is not our home, and we're going to be reminded of that in the text today. And we are so grateful that your son came, paid the price for our sin on the cross, was buried, but he rose from the dead. And grave, the grave, death, all of that has been dealt with because of the resurrection, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And we thank you. We, we mourn today, but we mourn with hope because we know that Diane is in your midst, singing praises to you in a glorified body. No more cancer, no more brain tumor. Oh, Lord, we just rejoice. Be with those that can't join us this morning as well with health issues. We think of Ron Page. Lord, continue to be with the doctors we pray for the results next week. For those who are undergoing surgery this week, we pray for them. And Lord, for many, there's a whole host of other things we could list that just kind of distracts from the service. Our mind is wandering to and fro. And I just pray as we, we look at the text today, help us to focus on your word. Thank you for your scriptures. And it's in this that we read that you love us so. And we thank you. And the name of the risen one, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would turn to First Peter, you heard me correctly, not Nehemiah. If you've been with us, we've been journeying through the book of Nehemiah. We're done, and we're now going to the New Testament to the book of First Peter. If you, got, if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far, so just back up a bit. First Peter has been called by one scholar the jewel of the New Testament. The great reformer Martin Luther stated of First Peter, it's one of the most attractive and vigorous, confident documents in the New Testament. As a precious jewel, and I think that's a fair assessment, it carries great value. This letter is personal, it's practical, and I would argue it's very pertinent to the church in America today. You, you see, 1 Peter speaks to believers who are marginalized in their faith. I think it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination that we'll find ourselves all the more able to relate to this letter, this epistle, because Peter's audience is a group of believers that are living in a world of confusion. There's anxiousness, there's frustration, and there's division. And so we've entitled this series, which fits so well with the book, Hope in a Hopeless World. So if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're only going to look at the first two verses today. So there we are. From Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those temporarily residing abroad in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, the province of Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by being set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood, may grace and peace be yours in full measure. It's only two verses, and it serves as what we often refer to in a structure of a first century letter, the opening. Uh, this is a standard format in the first century. You have an opening, and that's the author to the audience, greetings. 
All of Paul's letters start, if in the Greek, if you look at the Greek, all of the, the letters start with Paulos. All start with his name. So you'd have David to the church at the Westfield High School, greetings. It was a set format, and, and we see that here as well. But <laughs> Schreiner states in his commentary, this is hardly a customary hello. It's theologically rich. It's densely packed with themes, even in these first two verses. You get a glimpse of where we're headed as salvation is exalted by Peter, and we'll talk about him in a minute. And, and the, what comes from that salvation that's granted, which is grace and mercy, which this audience desperately needs, as we're going to see here as we unpack this. So let's look at the author, Peter. It's what his parents well, they gave him the name. They didn't give him the name Peter. They gave him the name Simeon, right? Or Simon. We know he was born in Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a bit of a hubbub of flurry of activity. It was a harbor town. Thus, it shouldn't be surprising that Peter, by trade, was a fisherman. We know his father's name. It was Jonah. We know one of his siblings. That was Andrew. And we also know that he was married because Peter's wife's name, though she's never referred to by name, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So we, we see there's a family from this fellow. We, we know that early on he was a follower of John the Baptist until he became one of Jesus' original followers, disciples. And after following Jesus, Jesus changes his name from Simeon to Peter, the name that's mentioned here in the epistle, or sometimes it means the rock, Petrus. It symbolized a change of character in his renaming, and it so partially anticipates that Peter will serve as a pillar, pillar, excuse me, my Hoosier accent, of the early church, right? Peter also served, as we know, as a leader of the 12. He's the spokesperson, isn't he? He often is addressing the crowd of the 12 in particular, and he's in the inner circle. He's privy to certain things, such as the Mount of Transfiguration or the raising of Jairus' daughter. But we also know that he suffers from foot and mouth disease. Poor Peter, right? Uh, he's type A through and through. He can't keep quiet. And consequently, even the father has to tell him to be quiet on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus reprimands him in the upper room. And of course, he denies the Savior three times. Oops. But in the restoration of Peter in John 21, he's told to care for the flock. I love it. And not, it shouldn't surprise you. All of this, this is, this background's important because as we read this epistle, it's through those lens. Here's a man who understands grace. <laughs> he wasn't done away with. The Lord could have said, you're through. Go back to fishing for, for fish, not people, Peter. You denied me, you're done. Mm -mm. God extends grace and it's no surprise this epistle is often referred to as the epistle of grace. That word will occur 10 to 12 times, depending on how you deal with the cognitives in the cognates in this letter. Grace, grace, and grace. Also, it shouldn't surprise you that he's going to talk about shepherding the flock, caring for the people. All of these things, they come out of this man who, who's lived it. He has experienced God's grace. He's experienced God's forgiveness. And as the rock, he will lead the charge in the first 12 chapters of Acts. It's, it's all about Peter. He preaches the first sermon. 
He deals with the first the discipline. He's the one who helps forge the gospel into Samaria. And he personally leads the first Gentile, Cornelius, to the Lord. And so you see his role. And Peter, as we know later on, has the great privilege, and I use that properly, is incarcerated during the time of Nero, and he will be martyred uh, somewhere between 64 and 67 AD, which means this epistle, which is most likely penned while he is in prison, would place the letter around early 60s in the first century. Listen to what one church father, early church father Tertullian says about Peter and Paul. He says, since moreover you are close upon Italy, you have Rome. This is where Peter was imprisoned, and it's where he will die. Church tradition states that uh, they were going to crucify him. He said, I can't be like the Savior. So they crucified him upside down. He says, from there comes even into our hands the very authority of apostles themselves. How happy is its church on which the apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where Peter endured a passion like his lords. This is our author. He, he's been on the forefront. And we know, at least church tradition states, he, he moves from Jerusalem as the hub to Antioch, which is on the border of modern Syria and Turkey. And it would have gone through this region. So let's, let's talk more about that in a minute. But notice what else the author says about himself. From Peter, don't miss this, an apostle. It means, literally means one who's been sent. Uh, it's a technical term, obviously, here, as an office of preaching and teaching. And notice it says an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the only title in the New Testament where you have attached of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who held the office of apostle are put on the same foothold as the prophets of old. They could speak and write God's very words. That's why in 1 Thessalonians it says, this is God's message that I deliver to you. In other words, as Peter begins this letter to those scattered around, and we'll talk about where they're located here in a minute. He says, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's setting, he's establishing his authority. And he's also saying, what I'm about to write to you is straight from the Lord. It's that significant. You need to hear what I have to say. It's kind of like receiving a letter from your boss's boss, right? It says, from Bob, oh, CEO of the company. Oh, then you're going to listen, right? You better listen. You better read that letter very carefully. Or if it's the principal that writes to you, not the teacher, but the principal, right? And this is the idea. It speaks with authority. So here we have the author. The recipients are to those temporarily residing abroad. They're not on a travel visa. They're not studying abroad. Let's talk about who they are. Well, when you try to determine kind of the backdrop and, and who the audience are, it reminds me of the phone conversations in Charlie Brown. Remember those? Well, I was telling you, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, wah, 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 wah. And, and, and you got to piece together what's happening. The same with deciphering a letter. You're trying to figure out what is the background? Who is this audience? What are they encountering? I'm going to argue, and scholars differ on this, but I would argue our audience is primarily Jewish. Certainly Gentiles are involved. I think there's a large segment here we could, we could argue. One is Peter 
primarily, though, yes, he led Cornelius to the Lord. His focus was primarily to a Jewish audience, unlike Paul. But there's some other things here as we listen to the wah, 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 that we kind of can piece it together. And it suggests that most likely they heard the gospel all the way back in Pentecost, back in Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 2? Jews were brought all over the Roman Empire. Why were they there? They were there for Passover, for Pentecost. I mean, they were there for the festivals. And while there, they heard the gospel. And it says that they heard it even in their own dialect. And the gospel spread as they would go back to their home fronts with the gospel. We know that in the first century that there was an estimated approximately 3 million Jews who lived in the Roman Empire. Only 700,000 lived in Palestine. So you have the Jewish population is scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were the largest minority in Rome in the, in the first century. And so we have, I would argue, this is a group that has been scattered abroad, these Jews. And it says to those temporarily residing. And then you have these list of names, these five areas within the Roman Empire. This is all, um, well, it's mainly northern Turkey uh, is where we are today. The list describes most likely a route that would have been taken Uh, Peter's letter is taken to these Christians that are scattered throughout. They would have went from this this very lineup, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and moved through. Years ago, I took a group of students. We we took a bus ride. Well, we had a bus that we chartered all the way from Lake Van, which is Mount Ararat, and took it across Turkey. That was the longest bus ride I have ever been on in my entire life. But we went through these regions, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia. And and, and this is the route that they took as they moved through this region, a circular route. It's significant because what what would have happened is the letter, 1 Peter, would have been read to these congregations. They would have copied it and then disseminated it to the smaller congregations in all of those regions. We know that based on uh, what's said in Second Peter about Paul's letters, that they were being gathered, collected, copied, etc. And it says here that they're temporarily residing. In other words, they're sojourners. This is not their home. Abraham was called an alien and sojourner among the Hittites. By the way, you know where the Hittite capital was? In this very region of modern Turkey. Interesting. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, all the heroes of faith from Abel all the way to Abraham and, and then further on acknowledge that they were aliens and sojourners on the earth. I remember when I lived in Aberdeen for a couple of years in Scotland, you, they issued students the National Health Services card. I thought I'd really attained it. Free social medicine. It was lovely. We won't go there. Right? I, but I wasn't a citizen, but I had, they called me a resident alien. I, I, I couldn't vote. I couldn't run for prime minister. I couldn't serve in the security detail for the queen or ex- expect a social security check when I turned 65. And as soon as I completed my degree, here's your NHS card back, right? It was done. But it, I was temporarily residing, and that's what we have here. These people are temporarily residing. They're called chosen in verse, the latter part of verse 1, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I reminded the, the lyrics of the old hymn, This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. 
And on another level, a spiritual level, this is not their home. Bithany is not their home. Pontius isn't their home. Ultimately, their citizenship is in heaven. We also know from the letter that they are undergoing persecution. That is clear. In fact, look at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. It brings you joy, although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials. Such trials show the proven character of your faith. Again, trying to figure out the wah, 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 wah. Is this uh, Trajan's persecution? I don't think so, because that's post-Peter. I think we're dealing with Nero's persecution in the 60s. And that's trickled down throughout the Roman Empire as he targets believers. One scholar writes, such persecution is difficult to locate either chronologically or geographically. We just don't have enough pieces to know exactly what this is. But it could fit, the scholar writes, almost any time and place in the Mediterranean world in the late first or early second century. I think the vagueness is intentional. <laughs> because it, it helps us to even relate further. I think this is why Paul never said what his thorn in the side was. It, we could relate. We can connect. Yeah, I may not live in the first century in Cappadocia, but I, I live in Carmel in 2022, and I understand what enduring trials means. And, and that's the beauty, I think, of this letter. And so we're going to see this as we go through the book time and time again, the, the account that this, this group of believers are suffering for their faith. And that leads us to the third point about our recipients. They are definitely believers. To those temporarily residing who are chosen. The term is elect or chosen. It's passive, which tells us that God has taken the initiative. In other words, the church, believers, there's something very unique about this. God is intimately involved. And we're going to see that in verse 2. It's not just a, well, it should never be compared to the Rotary Club, the Red Hat Society, or Boy Scouts. This is something vastly different. The Bride of Christ, the church. Hence the church, one writer states, with all its institutional flaws. We're not perfect. I heard recently, if you want a perfect church, don't go there. You'll ruin it. Uh, there, no church is perfect. We're made up of sinners saved by grace. We got our faults. I was expecting to hear more amens than that. Good. Deserves more than passing interest. It's more than an instrument of conven convenience like the corner drugstore. It is, in fact, that community with which God has identified himself in his eternal purpose. They're chosen the word is used in Deuteronomy 7 of the Israelites. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He has chosen you to be his people, prized above all others in the face of the earth. It's not because you were numerous than all other peoples that he chose you. For in fact, you were least numerous. Rather, it's because of his love for you and the faithfulness to his promise. That was made to the Israelites, but we also see it to the church now, notice what he says about this chosen, and that's found in the next verse. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The first thing we see is the origin of the salvation. That is, the, believer, the Father has selected them. The believer's salvation is the creation of God's blueprint. It's not of man's imagination. The foreknowledge here speaks of the fatherly care, the love that's given. 
By the way, the side note, I think Grudem is correct in his commentary. How the Net Bible, the NIV, the New American Standard all have this according to the knowledge that seems to, that it's only speaking of the chosen. But as Grudem argues, the chosen word actually in the Greek follows Christ. It says, literally in the Greek, it, it's Jesus Christ's chosen ones who are scattered abroad. In other words, what Grudem's arguing, and I think he's correct, this foreknowledge speaks of everything that they're dealing with. In other words, he, the foreknowledge is that he knew their, their status as sojourners. He knew the privileges that they have as God's chosen people and the hostility that they're facing and what they're encountering. I think it's really good. And I know, when we start mentioning the word election or chosen, people start breaking out in rashes, <laughs> right? I've got uh, all sorts of views here, right? Let me, let me highlight a couple things for us when we talk about the foreknowledge of God. First of all, I think we'll all agree that nothing is outside of God's providential control. Ephesians 1 is clear. The Lord works all, all things, not some, according to the counsel of his will. There is no such thing as luck or chance. Nothing just happens. We do not serve an impersonal God or a spiritual hocus pocus. Our lives are not relegated by a rabbit foot a lucky sock, or a horoscope. We serve a, a God who's intimately involved, and that's what we see here according to the foreknowledge of God. And I love it that we have the qualifier, the Father. <laughs> He's the one who cares deeply. And there may be some in this room that Father is not a good term. You've not been blessed as I have with a good earthly Father. But read the descriptions of, of what that means in Scripture it's one who's intimately involved, one who cares deeply. In other words, we should see God's hand in events throughout all of life. Never should we say best of luck, right? Rather, God bless, God speed. I mean, think about the, I was thinking through the life of our church just this past week. Look how the Lord has been working in our midst. Diane Horn, she's home. No more suffering. Oh, we're going to miss her dearly. But she's home. The 60 teens were at the baseball event last night. Numerous women are registering for Bible studies on Monday night. And they got the 27th kickoff. We, we launched our Sunday schools this morning. We see God's hand in the life of our church. What about you this past week? Has, how has the Lord worked in your life? In fact, take some time later today and list five ways God has gone before you where you've seen his hand in your life. And so foreknowledge indicates, number one, God is in control. Secondly, God never sins, and human beings are responsible for the sin they commit. Let's don't lay that at, at, you can't lay it at God's feet. According to James 1, you can't lay it at Satan's feet either. You're responsible. Third, people are foreknown, not their faith, I would argue. Foreknowledge as mere perception. It's not the basis of election. They are in harmony, yes. But that doesn't mean we're robots. Far from it. Because I often hear, well, if you believe that, then we really had no decision in the process. No, no, no. Scripture re repeatedly affirms that our choices are genuine choices that have real results, and those results last for all eternity. John 3.16 whosoever believes in him. 
The Lord allows us to think, decide, and choose. Election alone does not save. People are saved through faith in the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. So what are we saying? <laughs> what we're saying is this is a mystery, I would argue. That God's infinite greatness can do far more than we could ever think possible. The same God who calls his people before the foundation of the world according to scripture is also the same God who wishes that none should perish and that whoever calls upon him will be saved. It's a tension. It's a mystery. Better word here. And what that tells us is that we walk in humility and grace. It, it, it tells us that, yes, in the process, we have a humble-like confidence, childlike confidence in his love and his wisdom. There are theological camps that try to describe exactly what is God doing here. There's full-blown Arminianism. There's Calvinism. Those are all man-made systems to try to explain, I would argue, a very profound God. All of these theological truths, it's their biblical terms, election, chosen, foreknowledge, all these truths should cause the believer to trust in God in all circumstances, gratitude for all benefits, patience in adversity, and freedom for worrying about the future because we're convinced not just like somehow cause it that all things good for those who are called. The old hymn by William Cowper, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And I love verse four. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Paul spends 11 chapters dealing with justification, which means to, to be declared right in Romans. And what does he do at the end of 11? <laughs> He's not done with the book. And he does what you're not supposed to do, at least in letters written in the first century, the doxology or the, the, the whole, yay, is at the end. No, in chapter 11, he breaks out in song. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? <laughs> who has been his counselor? Wow. And so this is what we see here, I would argue. God is chosen, he's described here in three, three then modifiers, according to the foreknowledge of God, as we see, which is the origin. Now he gives you the manner of the means. It's through the Spirit, by being set apart by the Spirit for obedience. Being set apart, we have a 50 cent word for that, it's called sanctification. Uh, but it, it really means just simply set apart. You're not to be of the world, and you're in it, but you're to be holy. And as he writes to this group of believers who are in the thicket of it, they're, they're there under persecution, they're being marginalized, he says, stand fast in your faith. Second Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's not just enough that he knew us and he was involved, as it says, he chose us. He's given us the spirit, which works in us. The implications are huge, right? The role of the spirit is essential for our spiritual growth. Failing to allow the spirit to control our lives will result in rebellion and sin, hands down. Secondly, we can rejoice. We have the resources necessary, right? 
That's why Paul in chapter 7 of Romans, he goes, man, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I should do, I, I don't do. And he gets all up. And he goes, what is the solution? It's found in the next chapter, chapter 8. And what is it? It's the Spirit. Dependence on him, allowing the Spirit to move. And that's when we uh, are in a, the battle, we lean to the Spirit. We're not to lean on the spiritual life. Well, if we don't lean on the it's kind of like the guy whose lawn is dead due to the drought. And you say, well, don't you have a sprinkler? He goes, yeah, but why am I going to use it? Well, then, you know, then you wonder why it's not green like it was last year. You got to use your sprinkler. You got to tap into the spirit. John Murray in his book, Redemption, states, indeed, the more sanctified the person is, that is set apart, holy, the more conformed he is to the image of his son, the, sa- the Lord's the Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper the ap- apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God. And Peter's writing to these group of believers that are scattered abroad. No doubt some of them are really questioning their faith. You pull out my fingernail, I'll, you know, I'll start to sing. Oh, second guess, right? Is this what we should be embracing? And Peter's saying, listen, don't forget your salvation. Look what God has done. And he set you apart. And a recognition of that should draw you in a a greater appreciation for the Lord and conformity to him. Well, it's not just through the origin and the manner, the spirit that's calling for obedience, but we also have the extent of, of the salvation, and that's found in the last clause here, and for sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood. It's the Savior who has cleansed them. Reminds me of Exodus 24, where Moses wrote down the words early in the morning, he built an altar, and what did he do? He took half of the blood of the young bulls that were being sacrificed, he put it in the bowls, and he splashed the altar He took the book of the covenant and read it aloud. And notice what he says. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. We're under a new covenant. Blood has been splashed again. But this time from God's own, his son, Christ. Luke 22, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. The sprinkling that we see here, sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood, indicates his death on the cross. It's the location where Jesus not only endured intense physical pain, but where he bore our sins as he took on the wrath that we should have taken on. You know, it's interesting, the blood of Christ occurs many times in the New Testament. And if you start to do a study, there are four things that rise to the surface. The blood of Christ cleanses our conscience, It provides bold access to God and worship and prayer, Hebrews 10. It cleanses us from remaining sin and allows us to be rescued out of a sinful way of life. Isn't that great? The blood of Christ. But what do you see there in that verse? You see the Father, you see the Son, and you see the Spirit, right? You see the three, the Trinity, the Godhead, who are intimately involved in our salvation. And as he writes to this group, again, who are suffering for their faith, who are scattered abroad, they're not home, these are refugees, he says, listen, let me give you some encouragement. First of all, as we launch into this letter, look at your salvation. Look at the role of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
And then he says, and I love this. So we, we've got the author, the recipient, and now here's the greeting. In Greek letters of the first century, it was Kyrene, greetings. I always had a, I had a Greek professor for years, and he'd say, started the class, Kyrene. And we're like, yeah. <laughs> it was the death sentence, right? Kyrene. Well, Paul takes that a little bit different, and the rest of the New Testament writers do as well. A derivative of it is grace, charis. Grace to you. Again, it occurs 10, 12 times, depending who you talk to. And he says, listen, grace is infused with theological meaning to the audience. He uses it as a wish of prayer for God's blessing of wholeness and prosperity in spiritual matters. Someone says grace is love that stoops. I love it. That's what we have here. And then he says peace. It's interesting, Paul most likely coined this. A lot of scholars would argue because grace and peace is used frequently in Paul's letters. And we see it here as well. Peace, shalom, baby, right? You got Kyrene, which has moved into grace. You got shalom, peace, which stands for a kind of life which everything works just the way our creator has designed it. Grace and peace to a group like this? Yes, because it's rooted in what God has done, the Spirit is doing, and the seal created by the, Spirit, the Son's blood, the cleansing. Grace and peace. It only can come from the Lord. And it says, may it, and I love this, be yours in full measure. May it be multiplied. In the Greek, it's, this is a, it's called the optative mood. You don't need to know that, but that construction, grammatical construction, occurs less than 70 times in the entire New Testament. It's usually placed with a wish or that of a possibility, or it can be a prayer. And here it's a prayer. Hey, may grace and peace be yours, and may it be in abundance because of your chosen. <laughs> the foreknowledge of God knew this. The Spirit is working and you've been cleansed by the Son. Well, we look at this and we say, okay, how do we apply this to us today? And this is there in your notes. Our identity as a follower of Jesus is found in him. Our social status or exclusion has no bearing on who we are in Christ. And think about it. These believers in ancient Turkey might be powerless, strangers in a foreign land undergoing persecution they are members of God's household. And they are part of what God has ultimately designed for history. We are who we are because of Christ. I remember during those days in Aberdeen, tourists often didn't go that far north in Scotland. And one day I was in town and there was a group of American tourists they just fit the quintessential American tourist. They were loud. They were a bit brash, and they were certainly confident. And I was with a Scottish friend, and she goes, oh. <laughs> she goes, those are Americans over there. And I said, I know. It was just, you could just spot them a mile away. They, they just fit the stereotypical American. Ooh, you know, you could just hear it. <laughs> Don't, when you are out and about, and you meet a clerk, or someone who assists you, and you said, they must be a Christian. They identify, they ooze it, they're stereotypical, they fit it, and I mean that all in a good sense. 
Philippians 3, for many live about whom I've often told you, and now with tears I tell you, they're the enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. We don't have to worry. Where did Diane go? Diane's with the Lord today. That's where her citizenship is. She's praising him. And, and we see here, and we also eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he has subject all things to himself. We're, our identity is in him. And we belong to the, the body of Christ. They might be scattered abroad, but what Peter's doing is drawing them together in, in the Lord. Some of you are going off to college. I know some parents have already dropped off college, your students, because I've, I've seen the, the red eyes today. Uh, I dread those days. You young people, be sure to find a local body of believers, a church to worship in. Don't assume you're going to get that from a dorm that you live in and your roommate's a Christian, so yeah, we read the Bible. No, 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 no. We are identified as uh, together, and, and we need that fellowship. We need iron on iron. We need people speaking truth into our lives and worshiping him to, together. That's the importance here of our identity in Christ. Secondly, our identity should bring us great comfort as we live in the world, no matter the situation or the location. While we might not be imprisoned for our faith, our faith in the Lord and adherence to his standards, I would argue, are resulting in some forms of persecution, ridicule, marginalized, excluded. A vibrant faith will, not may, will jeopardize elements and dimensions of one's life, whether that be physical, material, social, in the world we live in, which shouldn't surprise us. Christ said, they hate me, they're going to hate you as well. But our, our identity and knowing that the one who goes before us, we are his. And that's why I love Hebrews 11. These are aliens, they're strangers. They were looking for the sure foundation, the city, the, that which their citizenship rests in. And that is the same for us. Ephesians 2 said, you were once dead in your sins in which you formerly lived. In fact, you wallowed in it. You delighted in it. And then in verse four, but God being rich in mercy. The whole idea of chosen by the way and foreknowledge, all of that is passive. In other words, it's God who's did it. You didn't jump in to God choosing you or, or jump into the, he might know you. He's given you opportunity to respond, yes, but it's because God has taken the initiative by sending his son, by giving the spirit. And it says, but God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. And we've been raised up and seated with him. For by grace you have been saved uh, through faith, not of yourselves. I love it, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. And here it is. Our identity should bring us great comfort. And as Paul writes to these believers scattered through modern Turkey, he says, listen, this is who you are in Christ. Rejoice. You're his. It's, it's how Peter can say to a group of believers that are undergoing persecution, says, grace and peace be yours in full measure. How can you say that, Peter? 
You know what it's like to suffer. You're in prison in Rome. You're facing execution. He says, why? Because the Father, the Son, and the, Sp the Holy Spirit have invested much. They're working much, and they're ensuring the future. Paul writes in Romans 8, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, you need to respond. The offer's been made. Don't be like the neighbor who doesn't turn on the sprinkler. <laughs> Yield your life to the Lord and the richness that comes from it. Grace and peace are not yours if you don't know Christ as your Savior because it's directly linked to one who has been placing their trust in the Lord and admitted their sin. Identity finally should be clear of what we lips might occur in this world. Things that we never dreamed, espoused, or even being, now they're applauded. Unrest, hostility seems to be growing by news. I see what's happening in our world. And Hebrews says, so what can, Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. You who are scattered abroad, who are suffering, <laughs> you can have grace and peace because of who you are in Christ. Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold, sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from who your father doesn't already know. These are the truths. And so this week, next time you listen to the news, reflect on your identity in Christ. Perhaps you need to commit Hebrews or Matthew 10 to memory. When there seems to be no solution and the desperation seems to mount, the doom of Mordor is just overtaken. Reflect on your identity in Christ. Claim one of the great promises of Scripture. When you become overly concerned and you're, you're worried about the future, reflect on your identity in Christ. He oversaw the past, he's handling the present. And he certainly has the future taken care of. He's already there. When people question you or what they think concerns you, mm, careful. Look who you are. And if you don't read Ephesians 1 in various ways, God has lavished his love on you and me. And so, what do you do? Allow grace and peace to abound more and more. Father, we thank you for this letter nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. It's written from a guy who truly understands what grace is about in peace. <laughs> we read much of his life early on as a disciple and oh, he, he had his warts. But you were gracious to him just as you are to us. You allow us to be used by you and we marvel at that, your mercy. And Father, it is our prayer that as we live out our salvation, as we cling to the promises of Scripture, that we would experience grace and peace in ways this world cannot even begin to comprehend. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus.